The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, Nick Nanavati. And this week, I'm joined by another member of the Art of War team, the man, the myth, the legend, the violence himself, Anthony Vanilla. Anthony, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. Thank you for that wonderful intro. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's been a while. Uh, have we had you on the show, actually? Yeah, I was on for Emperor's Children and Drukari once, I think. Okay, so you've been on. You've been on. It's just been a while. Well, it's good to <laughs> yeah, have you back. A little bit. <laughs> Anthony is one of our most acclaimed Warhammer players on the team. He's won a lot of different tournaments. He has made it to the top four of LVO. He has been on Team America two years in a row, uh, this year being one of the more captaincy roles. And Anthony, you're awesome. You're killing it. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm uh, I'm doing my best. Uh, I just got back from uh, Poland last like Tuesday. I was there for like two weeks playing a team's tournament with some of the boys on the international team. Um, so that was fun. Just, you know, recovering from jet lag, trying to get back into the swing of things. I actually have a, a weird lull right now. I have no tournaments between now and when uh, we go to Kansas City in June. So I know. I, sh- I, was shocked I was shocked when you said you were, like, available on a weekend. I was like, wow, you're not playing this game. You have yep. a lot of international friends that you've played with and accrued all the years. You have a lot of international connections. And that's really interesting because you're relatively new to the game. How did you get involved on the international scene as much? Um, so it's, start, I mean, a lot of my like friendships, I would say now are from going to WTC the first time, but initially it was just from being like active in discord and meeting people that were internationally based and finding like-minded people. And that happened to just line up a lot with people that happened to be playing overseas. Um, a lot of my early success in 40k actually came from taking like European or Australian list concepts and just playing them in the American meta where people were not particularly well prepared for it. Um, or at least that was a non-zero portion of it, it felt like anyway. Um, but yeah, so that was basically how that connection started. That's awesome. We're going to unpack that. We're going to learn about how you approach 40K, your philosophy about the game and how you play it, your international connections and how you've developed as a player with respect to all these different play styles you're exposed to. That's going to be in part one of this two-part show. Part two, that's going to be for patrons only. You can become a patron on our website, aow40k.com. It gets you access to the show and access to this amazing Discord server, which Anthony, Anthony is talking about and leveraging to get good at the game himself. So you definitely want to become a patron. In part two, Two. That's where we're going to discuss how Anthony actually plays his world leaders, an army that Anthony has piloted to immense success in recent history. Really hard to play, not very straightforward for being a very combat-y army, and we're going to learn how he does it. He's going to break down the strategy, the tactics, the matchups, all the different things that you may not think of when you think of such an army like world leaders, the more subtle side of the tactics. Anthony, are you ready? I was born ready, Nick. He's born ready. All right, I'm excited. Anthony, tell me a tale of how you actually got into Warhammer and competitive Warhammer. So those are basically the same story. So from like the word go, I knew that I was going to end up being a tournament player in 40K because I was looking for something to replace what I had been doing very competitively at the time, which was WoW and Hearthstone. Um, but I had a, you know, my girlfriend is a art teacher. So I was looking for something that we could do like together. And I was like, oh, when I was younger... 
I used to play fantasy. Um, so I was like, maybe I could get back into 40k. So that was the game plan. I went into a store uh, the week end that the 8th edition Iron Hands Codex came out. Oh, weekend not many people remember fondly, I am sure, as they terrorize at the meta again even now. And I picked up some Chaos Knights, which was, again, suboptimal given the Codex releasing that weekend, but it is what it is. You gotta start somewhere, and an army with three models is a good place to start when you want to start quickly. Um, But yeah, that was basically how I got my start. I wanted something that I could do competitively, that I could enjoy with my girlfriend, because uh, in the beginning she painted all like the models that I used. Um, after I would build them, she would paint them, then I would play. Um, and that doesn't really super work anymore, because the <laughs> demands of a tournament, a consistent tournament player, are not great for uh, <laughs> keeping your girlfriend happy with you. The constant tight deadlines don't mix well with, uh, like, hey, you're doing this for fun. Yeah, definitely. Babe, I need this done by midnight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, by tomorrow. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's the foundation of a great relationship right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But more to the point, most people, when they pick a game to get into, even if you have a competitive mindset, competitive back, and you know you want to be good at it, they don't think of Warhammer as like the competitive game. You know, or maybe they do now. Maybe the times are changing. What drove yeah. you to Warhammer from there? So I basically just wanted something that had the option to be played competitively. I wasn't like, I'm going to be on Team USA when I started. Um, I've been competitively successful on like other things, but nothing to the extent of 40k. The closest I've probably been would be um, in WoW. Um, but yeah, like it was just like, the idea was that like I would go to tournaments with the goal of like bringing home a winning record, you know, I'd go just for fun. Like I knew that tournaments existed and that was kind of the extent of my thought process on that. I wasn't like, I'm going to be super competitive at this thing. And the thing I want to pick for that is Warhammer. Cause if I wanted to pick the thing with the broadest community that would eventually pay me one day, it would be like league of legends. Right. Um, but <laughs> instead it was 40 K. I was just more interested in it. Um, the tabletop gaming aspect of things just seemed more enjoyable than another hobby that required me to not leave my house. So yeah, that was the uh, that was the idea. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And you haven't been playing competitively that long. You've only really been in for, for the playing play two, three years, right? Yeah, like I said, the uh, the first time I walked into a games workshop was the weekend the Iron Hands Codex released, like the supplement in eighth. So the very tail end of eighth, basically, you played all of ninth edition. Yep, pretty much. I played uh, exactly two tournaments in eighth, but they were both in uh, March of 2020, right before the uh, the big shutdown. So, yeah, that so was right, the, now, uh, right now we're at a time like m- matter of months away from tenth edition. I don't know when, but you know, relatively soon. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good time for people to be getting into the game, basically doing what you just did. And you went from I'm going to start playing Warhammer. I'm going to get competitive. Hopefully, when three out of five games in the tournament, to competing in Super Majors, taking down them, and, and competing, representing your country on the international scale. So what are the steps someone takes to, to get on that footpath? So thankfully, that path is easier now. Um, when I started, like, Art of War was basically in its infancy. I remember looking it up on YouTube and seeing, like, the, the fourth episode or something. It was you talking to Austin Wingfield about Three Chaos Knights and Mortarian. That was the episode that I saw, and I was like, hell yeah, this is awesome. That's what I'm doing. For those um, of you patrons still with us into those times, thank you for your support. Yeah, I am one of them. Um, so, 
the um yeah like back then there was like very scattered information right you were you know stuck on like 1d fortune and like trolling through forums and hop through a discord and hope for the best um so there was a lot of like me trying to parse who was actually good with who was just vocal um and like what channels to watch for battle reports and so on and so forth now thankfully most of that is a lot more recognizable um and tts is a lot more broadly used so you can get games even if your local meta isn't quite the <laughs> nightmare fuel shark tank that mine was when i started tts um, is tabletop simulator yes so um yeah it just that that's the path you find like good communities that are active and involved from players that are active and still winning things um because that was like another difficult portion of starting that i found was that like finding information that was accurate and not outdated was very difficult um because there would be like you know everyone's got an opinion but like if your opinion is based on how the game was played in seventh it's not super helpful to me starting in eighth um so yeah just uh it's really, it's really interesting because we have i get this kind of story from every guest we get on these days and i kind of ask them how they got it good at warhammer more or less and yeah. i found two divergent answers one is much like yours where you're like you get online you get into the discords with people by using you know your brain to figure out which ones are of higher value with competitiveness and you can navigate you once you know people you know people stuff like that and your tabletop similar community same idea and then in terms of like searching through youtube and google like thankfully nowadays like things like art of war are very well branded other companies are also well branded as opposed to just like this guy on a forum so that's yeah, exactly. that's all well and good it's relatively online though and then there's a much more kind of in-person traditional way of playing warhammer which is like going to your local stores getting to know people playing games like that then finding the competitive stores within your area going there on their rtts then going up to gts making friends and then kind of kind the competitive letter that way which uh you know last week we had john lennon on and he had the uh same idea with that yeah. so you've done a bit of both you've gone to tons yeah. of events you have a local scene up in, in new jersey new york area and you have this whole online community. How do you do both of them at the same time? And then how do you find each of them as far as effectiveness? The, I mean, the trick for me was to have an IT job that like let me browse Discord while I was waiting for things to load. Uh, that's like the joking answer. <laughs> the how much of that answer, is joking, though? Um, the real answer is that the they're both valuable in different ways. So the online presence has allowed me to like have a wider context than just like the oh i live in my meta's bubble um so i'm i feel like as compared to perhaps like some people that like only focus on their local it's much easier to be like oh i have like a wider understanding because of my like my literal wider perspective right i've seen more um even if that experience is not necessarily like firsthand in person you know i can rely on like the experience of others to fuel my own play experience the it's other side of that coin... I used to play 40k, too. It exposes you to a lot more. Oh, yeah. I mean, between seeing... Like, very early on, I was, like, you know, aware and, like, trying to analyze the difference of, like, teams lists and something like that. Whereas normally in the States, you would not see, like, that... Like, we have, what, two teams events a year or something like that? Maybe three. Um, so they're not really very common here. Whereas there, that's, like, a huge focus of their list building. Um so, but as the flip side of that being the, you know, the local in-person community, and I was very lucky to have 
people like TJ, people like Sean to kind of have their experience to lean on when I was starting so that they could kind of take me under their wing and show me how to play the game effectively. Um, there was a pretty good window of time where I knew that I was better than all of my locals and worse than Sean Naden. And that is a really wide window to find yourself in. And I had no idea like how good I was or wasn't until I ended up actually going to that um, Dallas Open where I got third at my first super major. And I was like, oh, maybe I am pretty good at this. And that was kind of the beginning. Wow. Yeah. That's, I feel like a lot of players, they don't know how good they are. They just go to a tournament to find out. And then they, for lack of better, better or worse, they do find out. And some of them yeah. are very positive. Like, like you said, you got third. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a weird space to be in. Cause I like, I was spending a lot of time. I was going, you know, to RTTs like as often as I physically could um, playing GTs again, locally when and where possible. And then there was like the big one to fly to. And it was like, all right, it's test time. And uh, it went pretty well. It went pretty well. Um, and then not too long after that, I ended up making the top cut at Atlantic City Open. Um, that was like another, you know, you know, consistency is obviously good. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was the beginning. Definitely. And, you know, when I first met you, you were very much an up and comer. And then you just kept on coming from what I could tell. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, uh, I stayed the path and just kept, you know, kept grinding. No, I would say that's kind of akin to your play style as well. I've watched you play a handful of games in 40k, and you really just like you pick a plan and you, you execute your plan. Like that's yes. what I would describe. How would you say you've found your identity playing 40k and what your play style is? So, funnily enough, I ended up doing this a bit backwards. I knew more or less what I was going to end up playing this game like based on how I played basically everything I've ever done. Um, from, you know, my background in martial arts through my time in Hearthstone, through my time in WoW, uh, everything I've ever done, I've played fast, aggressive things, um, which was actually like going back to that earlier point of learning the game. It was very difficult to find, um, like people that played like that past, like a very small subset of folks. Cause often in 40 K the better way to win consistently, um, is to take like slower, more measured approaches, but you can do it either way. Both work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was able to find consistent, aggressive strategies that would work. And that was kind of what I was looking to develop towards. So I ended up playing armies that kind of facilitated that, you know, between starting with some weird, like chaos stuff that just wasn't very good because that was like, you know, baby's first army, but you then eventually becoming, you know, Blood Angels and Drakari, Harlequins, and now World Leaders, um, or Emperor's Children and World Leaders. Uh, there's a pretty consistent game plan across those. So yeah, baby's first army was uh, Chaos Knights. That one wasn't really very good, but like after that point, when I started playing like the real armies, you know, ones with like crazy rules, like breachable. Uh, so I was throwing Blood Angels and Drakari, Emperor's Children, and then um, Harlequins and World Leaders, you can see like a pretty consistent through line of a very aggressive game plan. Um, like combat. Yeah, I like to hit things. Uh, the one exception to that was Harlequins, where I hit them with my guns from far away. Um, but that wasn't really like a super <laughs> genuine comparison, because release light Harleys could have hit you with whatever they wanted and killed you. Yeah, so. you were playing some Nine Woodweaver stuff. I was playing six, uh, oh, which I will contend was always the better list because it was better in the mirror. Okay. <laughs> so you have this aggressive play style, which always is such an interesting conversation because we all know that I love my corners. Yeah, sure do. You sure do, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never coming out, Anthony. You can't make it. 
<laughs> Maybe the new edition will reward passive play. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Well, we can find out. Yeah. So with your aggressive play style, I always have this question right off the bat. When you play armies and you have to get into your opponent, that just plays into so many armies' strategies of, as people come towards me, my army gets more deadly, so I will apply the killing to them because they have to hit me on my terms, that kind of thing. And it's yep. almost like you're walking your army straight into the meat grinder as your plan. Yep. Do you, how do you do that? How does that work for you? The, the trick, Nick, is to become the grinder. Um, so I, I, think I've, like, I think I noticed really early in 40k is that there are, like in a given game, you make literally hundreds of decisions. Um, and I think it's a thing that like people that have been playing the game for a long time take for granted. Um, but that like at every single step where every single model goes, how they allocate their attacks, where their attacks have to go, what their actual game plan for the turn is, where all those models are going. Um, every one of those is a thing that you're doing, but they're all an opportunity for an essentially a small error. And when you're playing aggressively, you're exploiting the fact basically that like no human is perfect. Um, now, not to say that like I'm playing based around gotchas, um, because You've seen me play a million times. I play very openly. I give people arguably too many takebacks. Um, the but that said, when you have to make three hundred tactical decisions in a game, you're going to make some suboptimal choices along the way. We all do, right? And what playing aggressively is looking to do is force even more decisions. Ideally, using the like crown jewel of my strategy which is transports. Um, an army that has good transports or like units that are so durable, it's often just a balance mistake, like Artists of Flesh Talos or Emperor's Children Terminators. Um, but usually transports is my go-to to create what I frequently refer to as like activation locks. So like as a very specific example, not too long ago, we had Tau in the metagame, right? And Tau could kill everything in line of sight, but they did it with three activations. So if you had a character in a transport with a unit, they just couldn't kill that character unless their first activation killed the transport because of character screening. That's just like a generic example. But the ability to set up you know, transports, units, etc. behind walls and force people actually into me because a, you know, as much as my opponents can move away in a game of 40k as we know it currently, uh, objectives do not move. So if I set up my threat ranges, melee or otherwise, to cover a zone of an objective comfortably, you have to do something to prevent me from taking that from you, or my opponent will eventually just lose the game on primary score, let alone secondaries. Right. Makes a lot of sense. You're using transports or just hyper-durable models, but really transports as a form of keeping your stuff alive longer than it should as you camp out on objectives and threaten objectives so if your opponent tries to interact and actually score primary points you're able to just obliterate them for free yeah exactly um though i believe it to be a, like a vastly inferior form of playing the game uh i do see generally quite a lot of success when we go to player placed events because the ability to set up staging as i please is really really brutal for that specific play style so you just said that you find the playstyle that you personally adopt vastly inferior to other play styles. No, no, no. I think 
uh, player place terrain specifically is a really bad way for 40k to be played. But I'm acknowledging that the way I like to play benefits from it a whole lot. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page again. I, I thought you were agreeing with me that corners were best. No, no, no. Corners are not the best. Corners are for boring. Uh, corners are great for a nap. That's true. That's true. You know who hangs out in corners, Nick? My cultists. You, cultists are good people. They're telling campfire stories. I want to be telling campfire stories. It's They're true. They tell great stories. Objectives. Absolutely. Don't talk smack about the cultists. <laughs> so how does your play style being super aggressive benefit from player place terrain? It's a bit of a double-edged sword, I imagine, just because like, if you win the rule, sure, you get to put terrain on the way to the objective so you can just hide forever, but vice versa. You lose the rule, doesn't like a forest go on a center objective or a card container, something very bad for you. The idea is that like, when I send an army out, when I send a unit out, I'm assuming it's dead either way, right? So I don't necessarily need the ability to hold the middle piece safely forever. Broadly, what I'm assuming is happening when I'm scoring primary is that I'm scoring eights from the two objectives that I'm able to hold safely, and I'm using the rest of the ruins that I get, not actually to hold the middle of the board, but to set up a zone where I can assault the, both the middle of the board and their natural expansion objectives without getting shot. And I don't need to interact with my opponent's player place setup in any way, shape, or form to set up that level of staging uh it gets different if i'm trying to just like never get shot ever but that's not like a realistic thing that i can expect from like u.s standard of terrain basically so i don't i play around it in a different way so charging onto terrain or charging from terrain onto objectives makes perfect sense but how are you yourself actually scoring points effectively especially in like some of the more diverse maps like data scry salvage or something like that or those just missions tougher some data scry specifically can be difficult, but it isn't. It isn't. It's one of those things where neither of us are scoring primary, and I, I'm assuming we'll touch on this later. But world leaders secondaries are insane. So if I can make it so that neither of us score primary, that's okay. Right. Well, that's uh. We're, in part two, we're definitely be covering the world leaders. Let's keep that for in part two for now. Yeah. Let's bring the conversation back a little bit to kind of your play style, your philosophy for the game. One yes. of the things I find really interesting about how you describe your aggressive play, as opposed to, say, Mark Perry, who we had on the episode just the other week as well, his aggressive play he described more as proactive control, trying to almost, in a way, activation lock the opponent by engaging as much as he possibly can and just threat overloading so much in their face as possible, and then truncating the game down to like a three-game turn. Um, three-turn games so that they could basically Mark scored all his points in three turns and kept you from doing anything, and basically in two, the remaining two turns, you can't come back up out of his points lead. And then right. you're describing it as a much different, more controlled approach, where you're getting aggressive and maintaining a position almost. Yeah, so what I'm doing, um, and this was the thing that I started picking up with uh, like Thick City, and it's kind of just like remained as part of my playstyle since, is um it's essentially the best way i can describe it is that like it's like an ever tightening noose so i put the pressure on early and it slowly mounts not as i'm gaining a resource advantage on my opponent um because we all only have so many units but between the combination of like putting their primary down going after their assets that kill me the quickest rather than like hitting their ability to necessarily score um it's just like this, you know, again, I'm reducing the amount of space that they can comfortably exist in without handing me a bunch of, like, 
charges that turn into slingshots that turn into tagging their units. Um, and, you know, like I was kind of saying, like, as the game goes on, the opportunity, I'm giving them more opportunity to make small mistakes, and those small mistakes cascade into large issues very quickly, is I guess the best way I can put that. One of the challenges I always run into personally when I when people talk about the aggressive play mindset being about presenting your opponent with decision overload, so you know people just make mistakes. In theory, yeah, absolutely, right? Like there's decision overload. People make mistakes. Human error is a thing, but not you know like you have to execute on that like eight times in a row, nine times in a row to win super majors, things of that nature. Yep, and especially in the higher round tables. The people you're playing against, like Richard Siegler, you know, maybe not as much anymore, but that caliber <laughs> of opponent is just like, it's meticulous, it's methodical. The mistakes, while they may appear, are not to be counted on and are le- likely very small. How do you leverage that level of mistake into a victory? So, yeah, to, to borrow a phrase from boxing, uh, there's a fighter in boxing, his name's Deontay Wilder, and he has a saying that goes... My opponent has to be perfect for 12 rounds. I have to be perfect for one punch. And that kind of translates into how I play. Um, Because when all that pressure's on, and now the pressure comes in multiple steps, right? I've historically played armies with a strong secondary game, so there's pressure on you from the scoreboard in that, like, if you don't come and get me, I will just outpace you even playing aggressively um, by lowering your primary, by making sure that I score my own secondaries, and so on and so forth. Um, Because the armies I tend to play tend to be fairly simple, and I'm the reason I've gotten to where I am is that I slam reps, so I'm quick. There is the realistic factor of that in a game, there is only so much time to make decisions. Uh, We only get an hour and a half each, Um, so there's pressure from like the time perspective, and then the last step is that there is you know, the the literal pressure, right? The in-game pressure of, like, all of your screens and all of your setups have to be perfect, and at no point can my opponent afford to have um, the very random component of our game slip on them. Whereas, like, when I put things out, I'm assuming they're dead, that's built into me. When I have things live, that often can result in, like, drastic swings in the other direction. So it's not that, like, the aggressive game plan, and this is something that you have to kind of accept going into being and becoming an aggressive player, is that not, like, your game plan is never perfect, but you have to remain fluid and adaptable to what kind of happens as the game progresses. Um, and the different armies handle that different ways. For world leaders, as an example, uh, it looks like not burning your resources too quickly and too early, or you just don't have them in the end game, and then all of the pressure that you put on early means nothing because you're dead. And unfortunately, at least in the current edition, dead models cannot hold objectives. Yeah, absolutely. So it's always kind of like this. It's an overload of pressure from a variety of angles, and I love that. You know, you mentioned the clock. I think that's very much a factor, especially when you try to position and create board states that your opponent is definitely unfamiliar with. I think that's definitely an undervalued example of the aggressive play yeah. style. Is you're just presenting a new problem as opposed to their planned out, calculated warhammer. Right. <laughs> yeah, especially when I was on my like original come up in the in the U.S. That was, or like even the first time I went to England. Honestly. Um, it's definitely a thing that people expect you to play like a, you know, a reasonable, like, oh, we'll trade on objectives, we'll go back and forth, we'll both score our points. 
and they get very frazzled when you like turn one Aether Cells or Raider into their deployment zone and charge one of their home field holders. And you're like, whoa, what is that is not what you're supposed to do here, sir. This is my deployment zone. What are you doing here? So <laughs> um yeah. So like you said, presenting people with uncomfortable, unfamiliar board states and situations to kind of break down a lot of the like heuristics that they apply to a normal game is part of what allows me to see consistent success. One of the challenges I run into when I play or try to play an aggressive play style or an aggressive army, aggressive mindset, and it's it's not my natural play style, so that's always going to be a bit of a disconnect for me. Right. Um, I never know. I see so many options in front of me, right? Like you could go forward with everything. You can punch the all on one link. You could spread it out. You could stagger yep. your approach behind terrain. Um, there's so many ways to approach an aggressive game plan, whereas a more control style, I'm really just focusing on my own points control and mitigating your ability to stop me. So with that many options, how do you find your path of attack and then execute it with confidence and certainty that you've picked the right one? So I have like a three-step thing that I go through at the start of every turn that I've basically ever played in Warhammer. Uh, it's It really is three steps, but there's like a step zero to it. Um, so like step zero is that like before my turn starts, like before I take my command phase even, I'll literally go around to my opponent's side of the board and look at it from their point of view. A, this makes sure like nonsense doesn't happen. Like I don't forget that they have like two rangers and a ruin over there. But also it lets me like literally try and understand things from their perspective to see where and what the breaking points look like if someone were coming at me. Uh, How much time would you spend doing that, would you say, during like a timed event format? Two to three minutes, if that. Um, it's quick. It's like, go over, take a look, understand like where things are at, where things look like they can be at from their side. And then it's like, okay, with that knowledge in mind, I go back to my side. And that's where like the, the actual list starts. So step one is, can I end the game like right now? Like if I, you know, if I hit the big red button, does my opponent lose like most of their army this turn and the game ends on the spot? Because sometimes those board states exist. And taking a second to recognize that they're there and that you don't miss them is really important. Step is two. It, is there, sorry, one question on that. Is there a risk association with that? So it's like, I could win the game if I hit the six inch charge, but if I failed six inch charge, I've kind of set myself out there and I'm going to get obliterated. So, if, like, would you go for that? Oh, yeah, 100%. A six, I don't even think about. I'll take it on an eight sometimes. You'll take like, it on an eight? That's not even supposed to work. Yeah. But that's what the rerolls for, Nick. Oh, my God. It depends on how important the asset is as well, right? If it's my, like, Chaos Terminator unit and it, like, has to hit an 8, that's a bad example because, like, hitting an 8 in that army is, really, is actually automatic because of Honor the Prince. But, um, like, if if someone handed me an 11, right, like, it was, like, roll a 5 up with Honor, I'm probably not going to take that unless, like, the downside is non-existent. You know what I mean? But, like, what I'm looking for in that scenario is that, like, someone basically set themselves up to stage for their next turn, but they got, like, a bit too close, and now I'm just going to end the game. The situation doesn't come up a ton now that I have more, like, consistent, steady-state threat ranges. Um, but in the past, when I played other armies that were, like, significantly faster, it was very easy to be like, I went first and staged in the midfield. Now it is literally impossible to get away from me because I am an elf. You moved up to try to, like, play the game of 40k, and now the game's over. Right. Um, so that's like step one is like, can I end this right now? Step two is, can I give them a zero on primary? So as the game changed in um, 
arcs? No. Nephilim? No, Nachman. Uh, whenever the mission secondaries became part of primary, what I used to do is look for the ability to give people fours, but the ability to now score, like, you know, in some missions you could, like, if it was uncapped, you could score, like, 70 on primary. Uh, now all I look for is zeros. Like, the ability to give someone a four is pretty good, but not quite the same when they can, like, hold the middle objective at the end of the game and get, like, 20 points from it. So now what I'm looking for is zeros. And then the last step of this is just I'm making sure that I'm scoring my secondaries. In some armies, that's more automatic than others. But that's the last, like, kind of like, okay, while I'm going through all the normal things I would go through in this turn, let's make sure that our secondaries are, like, putting points on the board. This is so interesting. This is ass-backwards thinking to me. It's like, whether or not I can win the game comes completely last. It's literally just, how do I not lose the game? I'm, I'm, my entire focus has been on preventing you from pressing your Terminator button. That's how yep. I do it. <laughs> and then, the secondaries first. You know, like, I, let me get my Warp Ritual checkbox, let me get my Scout the Enemy checkbox, whatever the other last one is checkbox, and I'm, I'm good, I'm happy. Yep. And, and prevent you from stopping messing with that. And then primary, even. This, is, I, this was what really got me, Anthony. You were like, I don't even look for fours. I'm looking for zeros. If I can't give you a zero, I keep looking. Like, that's your thought progression. Yep. I'm like, I can give them a four. Let's get out of bed today. You know, let's send the bench. Yeah. Let's go. Like, what? Yep. Uh, so, I think, I, I think yeah, often it's very easy to, like... So, the, what I was noticing when I was doing that, like, uh, this was, like, back in Nachman, even, um, is if you're playing aggressively and you try to burn them down to fours... But, like, you never break past that. You'll run out of resources by, like, turn three, four. And that means they're getting two twelves plus whatever the tertiary is. And then you're not winning. <laughs> you're not wrong. That happens often in games that, yeah. are like, really go the distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, when you're really looking for zeros or bust, what, are you, what kind of opportunities, like... Is that is it just obsec trading? Is it like my army is moving to your house now? Like how aggressive we're talking? It depends on what it is. Uh, I'm gonna like lean on the world leaders example here a fair bit. So a lot of the times a play that I'll take against world leaders, right? So some of the missions where like it's really hard to give people zeros are the corner deployments. So that would be you know your death and zeals, your conversion stuff like that. Because though you start close together to like take someone's home away from them and death and zeal is like you know borderline disrespectful. Um, so often the way that I end up managing that is I will charge a unit of berserkers into and past something and kill that thing with a different unit and sling the obsec onto their home field objective. Because with Arcs of Omen, lots of people are leaving, you know, to use your craft world example, like two warlocks back there. <laughs> and those guys don't have obsec. Um, so very often you can kind of sling past people as they've gotten more greedy and cut troop choices to knock their primary all the way down to a zero. I'll That's take actually giving a 10 them a minute four. tip that John is doing this week in the world. Funny. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. People have gotten very greedy with what they hold their home field with. And people are generally like not the most careful about making sure that your unit doesn't sling past them and touch their home field. Um, like, and to go to an earlier point real quick, like, I'm not, like, I have no nothing against giving them fours. Like, I will gladly give you fours. It's just that giving them fours is going to be more part of my natural game plan that I'm not having to, like, deviate and be like, oh, wait, I can give them a four here. You know what I mean? Whereas, like, that's, like, naturally a thing I'm trying to do. Whereas when I see an opportunity to give someone a zero, it's like, let's do that. That sounds awesome. So there's, like, a fighting mantra 
but you're a fighter or anything. I am not, so don't, yes. don't take this to the gospel here. Um, <laughs> there's a fighting mantra that you always want to keep the enemy in front of you, and you always want to be moving forward. And I, I'm assuming that's true uh, in most fighting styles, and also it seems like you're applying it to 40K as well. I don't hear about going backwards. You know, the table is the table to me. Well, your space, my space, the home space, it's all the same. Yeah. But it seems like you really want to keep your opponent in front of you, shuffle them in and limit their board control. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to limit my opponent's options down to a very narrow band of choices, and I want those choices to be bad choices. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, not only... Like, I'll give you a bunch of lose-lose choices to make, and then you can write your own adventure on how you want to lose the game. That's kind of yeah. like how I approach it. Exactly. You're like, no, you don't get to make choices. The only choices you get to make are bad. It's like a double whammy. Yeah, exactly. You get very few choices, and the choices you do get to make involve, like, you know, a rough path. <laughs> so, and then World Eaters Withstanding. We'll get to your World Eaters in just a bit towards the end of this episode. We'll walk through the list, and then in part two, we'll walk through the actual how, how it works. Yeah. But a lot of times when you play these aggressive armies, you forgo things like warp ritual or like a secondary game plan beyond just table them and points will figure out themselves. What happens if you really just can't maybe cross the Rubicon or crack the nut, so to speak, and then you're just not scoring as many points as they are? I, uh, well, step one, I love warp ritual. Warp ritual is stand in the middle and beat your opponent to death. That's my favorite secondary in armies that I have that can take it. Um, <laughs> Secondly, but unless you're playing craft worlds, then it's like this guy that can't be denied goes in the middle and then he leaves. But <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, in general, and this is going to be like a, a fairly callous answer that I might get some a, a bit of a criticism for. But when I notice that I'm playing an army that uh, like some of the more premier defensive profiles in the game can no longer crack, I actually just switch armies. Um, I usually will stop playing an army at that point when I'm like, oh, the meta has surpassed this. It is no longer enjoyable for me to play this in this playstyle, and I'll just change to something else. I mean, part of that is is totally valid. You've collected a lot of armies. You have Tabletop Simulator as an available option to you, which allows to play switch armies. Some people are faction diehards, and we definitely get those people on the podcast as well, to each their own with it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm a lot more, um, I'm a playstyle diehard, right? Like, I want to play the game how I want to play it, but I don't, like, I'm much more interested in not compromising how, my enjoyment of the game than I am in my, like, loyalty to a faction. Otherwise, I'd still be playing CSM, and that army makes me depressed when I have to play it right now. <laughs> I, I feel you. CSM is one of my armies. I basically have like five or six armies I really enjoy, and then yep. I have playstyle I really enjoy, and I hope that I can apply my playstyle to one of those factions. <laughs> Ideally, they link up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Anthony, I think it's about time. Why don't you walk us through this World Eaters, World Face Beaters list you've gotten going on over here? So a small spoiler before I just like run through the list real quick is this is probably the list of all the armies that I've played that I've had to play like the most uh, conservatively in a game. Like very often my world leaders games look like me putting up banners and then just staring at my opponent, daring them to take them down while like looking down at my art of war jersey and reminding myself that I'm your teammate and that I can play conservatively. I'm so proud of you. That really touched my heart. Yeah, yeah, it's a real it's a real thing. I win a lot of World Leaders games by six points on turn five. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um, so the list is uh, it's a World Leaders, you know, detachment. No, uh, no disciples of the Red Angel here. 
Uh, it is Lord Invocatus with his Warlord trait, which allows uh, two units within nine to pregame move. I have a second uh, Warlo- uh, Lord on a Juggernaut with the Berserker Glaive. Uh, that gives him a whole bunch of benefits, strength nine, more AP, exploding, uh, double exploding sixes, even before you have tithe up. Uh, he's really good. Uh, then I have four units of corn berserkers with a eviscerator and an icon. I have one more unit of berserkers with just an eviscerator. I have three units of four eight bound. The champion has the lacerators. And then I have three units of Exalted 8-bound, where the champion has two, ex- uh, two of the Chain Fist. And then I have three Chaos Spawn and two Rhinos. That's the list. 2,000 points on the nose, 4 CP starting. Super simple on the outlook. I mean, it just looks like World Eater stuff. 8-bound, Exalted 8-bound, Corn Berserkers, Rhinos, Solo Spawn to go die. I'm sure there's a lot more depth in how you actually play it. For an yeah. army that can only move, shoot, move and punch, like no shooting, no psychic, no trickery. Yep, there's a lot to it. We're gonna unpack it in part two. Everybody, stay tuned. Join us, aow40k.com. That's where the patrons go. You get access to the Discord. You get access to Anthony Vanilla's secrets to the world leaders, along with part twos of all of our episodes. This show is 186 episodes running, and you get access to all of those hours of Warhammer chats. Especially as we move towards 10th edition, we get a lot more content going. You won't want to miss it. Thanks so much for watching, everybody, and we'll catch you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.